0: This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. When the first modern Summer Olympic Games were held in Athens in 1896, Edwin Flack won Australia's first athletics gold medals in the 800 and 1500 metres. But it was 64 years later until a second Australian man won a gold medal, Herb Elliott, in the 1500 metres. And then eight years after that, there was a third in the 800 metres in Mexico City. And after that, nothing. Only three Australian men have won a gold medal on the track. Edwin Flack, Herb Elliott... And, well, can you name the third? Ralph Dubell won the 800 metres in Mexico City. It was an Olympics affected by riots beforehand, racial tensions during the Games, and it all took place at altitude too, making things even more difficult for the athletes. So how did he do it? How did Ralph Dubell win that gold medal and set a world record in claiming that gold? Ralph is our very special guest this morning, Ralph thank you so much for talking to us
1: my pleasure my pleasure
0: does it seem like 50 years ago that this all happened
1: in some ways it does and other ways it doesn't uh, i can basically remember every, every meter of that race and in fact last year i walked the track with my wife because a cousin of ours was married to a mexican and we went across to mexico and the australian ambassador got us approval to walk around the track and i could speak to my wife and say this is where i was in the first lap This is where I was on the second lap. Felt good here, felt good there, felt (laughs) exhausted at the end.
0: (laughs) So you remember everything about the race?
1: Yes, yes. I can tell you. Um, yeah. where I was and who, who I was worried about and you know, what was going
0: on. Well, I want to hear that. Can I ask, though, quite often we hear, and I'm sure you did it as well, that you plan for the race, you have to run your race, but how can you plan for a race when there are so many variables, like the weather, like if other people deviate from their race plan, from the noise of the crowd, how do you plan?
1: Well, it almost came to disaster at the start because there was a break at the start of the final and the, the starter accused me of breaking. Mm. It wasn't me, as Walter Adams in lane four. But at that stage, if I disputed it, I would have lost concentration. And you know, you, you just say, well, yeah, he, he works for the IWF. He's, he's, he didn't know what he's talking about. Well, then the start of an 800 metres not all that important. So I just went back and started very slowly. And if you look at the tape, I was probably 25 metres behind Kiprakis. Uh, after 100 meters. I wasn't going to break the second time. So I just started very, very slowly. But, you know, in a race like that, you know what the tactics are. Kip Riggert was the primary competition. He ran one type of race. He went to the front and tried to run you into the ground. I ran another type of race, which is said, you sit back and with 100, 150 meters to go, you kick. And I ran heat semifinal, final, exactly the same way. And he ran the heat semi final, final exactly the same way he ran. So you just eliminate the rest of the field. I'd beaten everyone in the field, including Kiprigut, in the last 12 months. Yeah, the weather was there. You can't do much about the weather. The altitude was there. You can't do much about that. One thing you did miss out was Montezuma's revenge, which was the bad water. And I didn't have any water before the race. I basically... Clean my teeth in Coca Cola or beer, <laughs> and when I had a shower, I just kept my mouth shut. Mm. So, yeah, you, know, you just got to control as much as you can, and then everyone else is exposed to the same set of variables. How strong mentally are you to control all that? I spoke to Tom Farrell, and he said he couldn't recover from the false start. Well, yeah, he'd run, came came third in the olymp, uh, I think fourth or fifth in the Tokyo Olympics. So he should have had the experience to you know, not get it out of his head. But you've just got to be so obsessed that this is the only thing on your mind for 104 seconds.
0: Hmm. Kiprikit was your greatest rival in that race. You knew what race he would run. You knew that there wouldn't be anyone trying to pass you on that final straight. You knew that you had to run him down.
1: Yes, yes. We didn't have the advantage of television screens in those days. So I didn't know how far the rest of the field was behind us. Mm. But uh, yeah, you can sense where people are. You, you get a sense of whether people are on your shoulder or uh, a, a reasonable way back. And with 300 metres to go, I said to myself, OK, Pally, is now between you and me. Yeah. And that, that stage I moved into second. And I said, wait, 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 wait till the top of the straight. And you're just trying to keep that rubber band between him and me taut. Don't lose contact with him. And then I I controlled myself until 100 metres, just coming into the straight, and then I kicked. And it was exactly the same tactics which I'd used the day before and when I'd beaten him.
0: In fact, it's a fascinating thing that your coach, the legendary Franz Stample, said to you, it's very simple hey. win this gold medal. You've just got to win three races. The fact that you won your semi-final and your heat, how important was that, the fact that you knew that you could beat everyone in the race?
1: Franz also said another thing. Go out and make sure the other people in the race know that they've got to beat you. So you can't take it easy in the heat or the semifinal. And in the semifinal, I beat Kiprik by a metre or so. And so I put my stamp on the, on the other competitors and on Kiprikit to sow some doubt in his mind that this wasn't going to be his race to run home with. So you, you just, again, come back to how tough are you mentally to control all this and think about it. And all, you almost have to think, look at it as an outsider. You know, what's happening now? What's Kiprikit doing? Is there anybody else I have to worry about? But it was basically is between him and me. Franz also said, just win the next three races. Yes. And that happened to be the Heat semi final final.
0: Yeah, easier said than done, but you managed to do it all. The thing is, when you look at the race, as I've watched that race many times, and I presume you have, you beat him by about a metre at the end, but everyone else is a long way back. You didn't have to worry about any of them. You just had to beat one person.
1: Yes, yes. Everyone else, I think, was intimidated either by Kiprikit or by myself. Farrell, I think, lined up to try and run behind me. And the others, I think, just assumed they couldn't win.
0: So quite often there's a a bond that exists between people who are first and second in an Olympic race. Did that happen with you and Kiprikit?
1: No. He was the enemy.
0: But I'm talking about after the race. No, no. No?
1: I tried to contact him when I went to Kenya, and Michael Sharpe, who wrote the book, yeah. tried to contact him, uh, but he's, he's sort of disappeared. So there, uh, there was a bond between myself and Tom Farrell. Tom came out to Australia about nine or ten years ago, and we had caught up and had dinner, and uh, you know, he's, still, you know, he's still in touch.
0: Watching that race again, the commentator mentions that Wilson Kiprikit from Kenya, he's five metres ahead as you're coming around the turn. The commentator does not think he can be beaten. Did you think at that point, I can't catch him?
1: Well, it wasn't five metres. I think his estimate was wrong. I, think it was, I was never five metres behind okay. uh, in the second lap. I, I was maybe two, three metres behind. But I felt in control. I knew what he was going to do, and I knew what I was going to do and I thought I could catch him.
0: And you did. When yep. did you think, I've got this race won?
1: About 40 metres before the finish. Yeah, wow. uh, I struggled. I got past him, and I was just past him, but he's still there. I could still sense he was, he was there. And then the magic break comes, and you, you just feel as though you're, you're moving away, and you've, he loses contact. And, you know, after the, the last 40 metres, I'm sort of yelling to myself, I've won it, I've won it, I've won it. Yeah.
0: I've heard those sports people, when I've asked them, you know, when did they think they had it won, they said 10 minutes after the full-time siren. Like, you know, <laughs> you were able to enjoy that win while it was happening.
1: Yes, yes. And that's what i say You almost have to look out, observe it as an outsider. If if you get lost in the detail, if you get lost in the emotion, if you get lost in the crowd, you, you just get confused.
0: Too. Yeah. I've heard Cathy Freeman also say that, in that last bit, before she hit the tape, that that's when she let the crowd in. Were you able to blank out that crowd and not hear it at all?
1: Yes. I, I heard it before the start. I heard someone come on, you know, yell out, come on, Aussie. But after that, I didn't hear a thing.
0: So how does that happen? Do you just hear silence, or is it just this wall of white noise?
1: It's white noise. You just blank it out. You're so focused on... What's going on? Where is Kipra go? What's he doing? Uh, where am I? What am I doing? What do I feel like? And you just don't have enough mental capacity to listen to the crowd.
0: Ralph Dubell won the 800 metres at the Mexico City Olympics. He's our very special guest this morning. You thought about what it would be like to win the race, but did you think about what it would be like to be a gold medalist, to be always mentioned when Australia's Olympic champions are mentioned?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a tricky question. Um, <laughs> one, uh, yeah, I, I thought I had a good chance. And track and field news prior to the Olympics had a, a review of each event. And they said the 800 metres is wide open. Uh, Wade Bell is probably uh, an equal favourite with Kip Prigate. Dubell is a likely medalist, possible gold medalist, I think the phrase was. And so, I, yeah, I thought I had a chance beforehand. The Australian press didn't think much of it, much of me, but that didn't really matter. <laughs> um,
0: yeah.
1: So you, you just go out and and you you don't want to worry about gold, but you just worry about winning the race.
0: Okay. Because you had been running in thousand meter races, which is unusual, and eight hundred eighty yards. It was still in that kind of crossover period between the yards and the metres, even though they ran metres at the Olympics and 880 yards in other events. Was that a sort of a tricky thing to manoeuvre?
1: No. 801 metres is long distance, so it's very simple.
0: One extra metre, though, makes a difference, (laughs) doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does. (laughs) I was was, was running indoors, and indoors were still yards, and I set a world record for the 880 yards and 1,000 yards, both at altitude, in fact, in Albuquerque.
0: What I meant, though, when I was talking before about winning the gold was not winning that race, but being a gold medalist. Was it everything that you had wanted it to be?
1: I didn't really think of the concept of being a gold medalist. Uh, I was going out to do my best, and I thought I had a good chance, and by the final I thought I was the favourite. But you know, you, you've got to get through that, and once it happens, then things change, but... Yeah beforehand, you can't assume that you're going to be a gold medalist.
0: Sure. So you can plan to win the race, but you can't plan to be a gold medalist with everything that comes with that. All the the, the parades, the uh, awards, everything that comes with it, you're uh, not thinking about.
1: Rod, right, this is 1968. We didn't have parades. <laughs> really? We, we didn't run around with flags. And we didn't fall on the track. We just finished the race and say, well, that's a good race.
0: Let's yeah. go. Okay. Now, not only that, but the uh, presentation ceremony was an unusual one as well, wasn't it? It was pouring with rain. They played "God Save the Queen." Who gave you your medal?
1: It was Lewis Luxton, who was an IOC member and an ex-rower. He happened to be the Shell Company, uh, the chairman of the Shell Company of Australia, was, and I worked at the Shell Company of Australia. And he said after the uh, the presentation that I was the only person in the Shell Company he'd giving the golden handshake to without <laughs> giving them the sack. <laughs> But he he made a deal before we went to Mexico. He said, if you win, I'll present the medal to you. So I kept my part of the bargain and he kept his part
0: of the bargain. This was a very different time, though, as you mentioned. You know, There were fewer sports demanding our attention. Olympic gold medalists were really a big deal in Australia. We had plenty of them, but but they were a big deal. You came back and went to the Melbourne Cup. I saw that. But what else? How easy was it just to slip back into normal life after that?
1: There's very little publicity. There's very little focus on me. I was just a a runner who who happened to win. But there were swimmers and there's other people who were more famous than I was. I, at that stage, continued running but didn't run for the the next Olympics. And I I thought that it's time to go and do something else. So I went off to Harvard Business School.
0: In fact, when the next Olympic Games come around in (laughs) Munich in 1972, where were you?
1: I was in Munich because we were married on August the nineteenth, in seventy-two, and we went straight to Munich. It was just after the uh, the Israelis had been shot in the plane. Mm. So I was on my way to the business school. I don't think I saw the eight hundred.
0: You know, to take your new bride to the Olympics on your honeymoon—that's that's pretty good, I got to say. Anyone who reads the book will know about your persistence, certainly on the track, but also uh, as a you know a bit of a romantic. Uh, And that has continued (laughs) your whole life, Ralph. Flowers are very important to you, aren't they?
1: Yes, they are. I'm looking at uh, three white orchids sitting on the table. We just renovated our house, which we've owned for 20 years, and the white orchids uh, are a standard presentation feature for us.
0: It takes a very brave man, though, to have flowers given to a girl when she's out on a date with somebody else.
1: Oh, well, that's just competition. (laughs)
0: You liked competition, did you?
1: Well, um, if you look at my background, Olympic gold medal and uh, Harvard Business School. The Harvard Business School is quite competitive also. I think <laughs> yes. The, there are only two people in the world with a gold medal and a Harvard MBA. The other one was Tom Courtney, who won the 800 metres in Norman in 1956. Yeah.
0: Tell me about your coach as well, Fran Stample. Not only the man that he was, but also, you talk about competition... Just the, the differing views of how runners should be trained at that time, because people would know about Percy Cerity because he trained Herb Elliott to win the gold in 1960. What were his views and what were Fran Stample, your coach's, views?
1: Well, they were the best of enemies, or at least the press thought so. Uh, they, they were often in, uh, in conflict with each other because their, their style of training was different. Stample had been very successful with a large number of athletes. You know, he coached Bannister for the first four-minute mile. He coached Brasher for the steeplechase in 1956 Olympic gold medal. He coached uh, jumpers, throwers, uh, and runners, and sprinters and long distance. So really coached Herb Elliott, and that's about it. But Percy loved publicity. Franz was not a great one for publicity. But, he, you know, Franz was essentially my second father. My father died when I was 14, and uh, he took the place of developing me as not only an athlete, but as an individual.
0: You had an extraordinary early life, and as you say, certainly affected by the tragic death of your father. But going to Melbourne High School was an incredibly important part of your life. I mean, just reading the book and knowing a little bit about Melbourne High School, the number of well-known people that were there, not only in the history of the school, but when you were there, is yep. remarkable. I mean, everyone yep. from the Seekers to a lot of footballers, other athletes yep. as well. Yep. What was it about Melbourne High School, do you think?
1: It was a competitive entry. There we go again. Yep. My mother always wanted me to go there. It was then, and it still is, the best high school, you know, public being yep. government, uh, and they get remarkable results, and they continue to get those results. I think the emphasis on those days was very much, you know, you do everything. You do sport, you do academic life, and you do something else. I, I did a little bit of sport, not all that much, at high school. It exposes you to bright people, and I think that's enormous benefit. I found that, again, at business school at Harvard, you just learn by being around them, and they learn from you.
0: It's interesting, because the book concludes... With some reasons why you were successful, that natural ability, the inner drive to succeed, having an, an inspiration, even an eccentric coach, training with intensity, regular competition, does that also explain why you succeeded at Harvard and in your business life as well?:
1: I mean, yeah, There's not all that much difference. You, you, in business, you've got an objective. Uh, you know you've got competitors trying to get that, your client and you've got to go after them. Through the Olympics, you get a very good sense of what you're capable of. And you may end up a, a nutcase. And many people would say, I'm nutcase. But um, you, you, you do understand what your limits are. And being an Olympic gold medal says, you know, the limits are way out there. And so you, can, you are willing to take risks because you're willing to back yourself. And you wanted to pursue that challenge because you know you've achieved the ultimate in other fields.
0: How long before the Olympics did you really start training with the intensity to win the Olympics?
1: Um, I think the important event was a race in 1966 in a USA versus Commonwealth meet before the Commonwealth Games in Jamaica. And there was an 880 yards race and Jim Ryan was the world record holder for 880 yards, and I ran, and a remarkable thing happened. I I saw that other people weren't willing to challenge him. I was foolish enough to challenge him, and I challenged him up the straight. I blew up um, because I wasn't fit enough. Uh, That that experience, I thought I could beat the world record holder, and so I went back and had to have my tonsils out first, but from then on, which was mid 66. So it was two years where I thought you know the focus was on the Olympic Games.
0: There are so many incredible things, though, that happen in your life leading up to that gold medal. There's too many to list here, but if one of them had not happened, you wouldn't have won that gold. That's without doubt. It all begins perhaps with your coach coming to Australia for the second time, in fact, I think after the war. Yes. But also this extraordinary thing about you not even going to qualify for the Olympic team, except for somebody you didn't know made sure when you were trying to run a qualifying time that they set the pace for you. Nearly 50 years later, you uh, found out that somebody went into that race, that race that to uh, qualify for the Games to make sure that you could qualify. How do you thank that person?
1: Well... I didn't know who it was. Uh, it, 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 it's a funny story. I was looking to buy up some property down in Flinders, and the agent down there said, oh, my old man always tells me that he helped Ralph DeBell win a gold medal because he was, he was the pacemaker. And we had a party October 13th to celebrate 50 years, and our daughter also just swam the English Channel. So I invited... Uh, the real estate agent's father along. And so I thanked him then. who's was 50 years late, but uh, I, I at least caught up with him.
0: How different would your life have been if you hadn't qualified for the Olympics?
1: Oh, enormously. Chalk and cheese.
0: And now your daughter, you say, has spun the English Channel.
1: July the 5th, 12 hours and 24 minutes, 41 kilometres, something which I could never do. She's got to, tw- to swim around. <laughs> with all she's due respect,
0: swim- I would not put it past you, Ralph, uh, quite no, frankly.
1: Not no swimming, my good man.
0: <laughs> it's a remarkable life. Ralph, I really do appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. The book is a great read, not only about your life, but just really about the dedication and desire that people must have to succeed and also why Australia might be placed well to have another Olympic gold medalist on the track. As I mentioned, as everyone mentions, there's only ever been three. Why doesn't Australia produce more male athletics champions? Because we've produced plenty of female athletics champions.
1: Well, I, I think coaching, you come down to coaching, and I think that um, the coaches haven't had the experience or the knowledge of how to train an athlete, and... More recently, I think many of the athletes, especially the middle distance runners, are intimidated by the Africans. And they, they line up against three or four Kenyans and a couple of Ethiopians and whoever else. And they they just are not tough enough to say, I can beat these guys. I, I think, you know, you do need arrogance. And I was, I was, you know, arrogant, S.O.P. But hopefully I've changed a little bit. <laughs> but you do need... A focus, as I said before, and you need the mental toughness to do it. And I think that the Kenyans have uh, been very successful in intimidating most of middle distance runners. They always want to win because that's their way out of a pretty lousy life. Yeah. And, you know, they're they, they out there to succeed, and so is everybody else. I think in Australia, we're also, we promote our athletes a little bit too much. It's too easy to get trips around the world, and they concentrate on being selected for the Olympic team. But if you look back over the last, I think, 10 Olympics, we've only had about six or seven men reach an Olympic final on the track. That's not a great return on when Athletics Australia spent probably $50 million on the high performance program. Mm. So if you divide that in four, male, female, track, field, it's $12.5 million Athletics Australia spent on men's track. And what have we got? We've got three or four or five, six or seven men to reach the final. Not good enough. That's, That's not a great return on investment.
0: Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.